Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today in the book of Luke called A Firm Grip on the Gospel. So turn in your Bibles to Luke 4, 31 to 37, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled Authority. I'm reading Luke chapter 4, verses 31 to 37. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. The account before us is the first of 21 miracles of Jesus that Luke records. Each miracle account was thoroughly researched and examined, and it's an incredible track record. Now, of course, there have been people in the past who have done legitimate miracles, Moses, Elijah, Elisha, but their miracles, though most impressive, did not compare to the extent nor the magnitude of the miracles done by Jesus. And furthermore, let me say this, most of the religious leaders of the earth have performed no miracles at all. So here are some examples. Muhammad did no miracles. Neither did the Buddha or Confucius. Lao Tzu, the founder of Taoism, or the Bahula, the founder of Baha'i, or Zoroaster. None of these men did miracles. So in short, they spoke on various issues, but none of them had the authority of this one man, Jesus, who frankly stands alone without equals. And for that reason, it's important to both hear him and examine what he did. We start with the first miracle at Capernaum. Luke says that Jesus went down to Capernaum, and then he adds that Capernaum is a city in Galilee. Now, I've made note of this before, but please notice it again. Luke mentions the location of Capernaum because he's writing to a Gentile audience that doesn't know the geography of that region. And from our perspective today, Capernaum was unearthed and excavated in the years 1921 to 1926 by the Franciscans. And it's quite possible, given what was found, that it was a city of around 1,500 people. And anyone going to Israel today will always be taken to the ruins of Capernaum, in which one can clearly see the ruins of the houses and the shops, as well as an ancient synagogue, which was built on top of the foundations of an older synagogue that existed in the time of Jesus. Today, in contemporary time, you know, the ruins of the city of Capernaum doesn't actually touch the shores of the Sea of Galilee. There's clear evidence that the water level of the Sea of Galilee was higher and that Capernaum was actually on the shore of that lake, making it a vibrant fishing community. Nonetheless, because of all manner of cities that were located around the Sea of Galilee during the time of Jesus, this was a central place for Jesus to begin his ministry. And furthermore, there was a major trading roadway that ran outside of the city. It's called the Via Maris, and that too made Capernaum an important trade route center. You remember that Matthew had his tax booth right outside of that city along the Via Maris, that important place for taxation. And so this Capernaum became the base of Jesus' operations. And today it's often called the city of Jesus. You know, Luke tells us that it was the Sabbath. 
As we've already seen, Jesus was always in a local synagogue on any Sabbath, and so on this Sabbath, he was in the synagogue in Capernaum, where by now you'd think he would be the main preacher of his day, and he was. Luke simply says he was teaching them. And then he adds, they were astonished at his teaching. Now, we've already seen that when Jesus was 12 and Mary and Joseph found him in the temple in Jerusalem and he's interacting with the leading biblical scholars of his day, and he's doing so with such insight that everyone in the temple is astonished, as were Mary and Joseph, what he's able to say. And Luke's also shown us that when Jesus spoke in the synagogue of Nazareth, people were astonished there as well. And so this reaction to Jesus, that they had never heard anyone speak like this before, this was common everywhere. And then Luke gives us an insight as to why this reaction to Jesus. He possessed authority, Luke says. So let's ask ourselves what that might have meant. And the best way we can get at that is to contrast Jesus with the kind of teaching that people would normally hear in their synagogues in that day. And from all the studies that I've seen, it would seem that the rabbis in Jesus' day would very rarely exposit the scriptures themselves. They would, when reading the scriptures, quote the opinions of the rabbis who had gone before them. They would say, well, you know, rabbi, so-and-so says of this passage, and then they would quote from other rabbis. And so it became quite customary not to hear the word directly, but rather from what other scholars have said about the word. Now, you might remember that Jesus spoke against such an approach. You know, consider one example, and that's in Mark 7. Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees, and he says to them, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And then he gives an example. So the command of God said, honor your father and mother. But they had a tradition. It was called korban, and that word meant given to God. And what was expected of you in relationship to your parents, you could substitute that and give it at the temple. And thus, you are no longer under an obligation to your parents. That was one problem, and it was a huge one. But the effect of this was that people no longer trusted the Scripture. I mean, after all, who were they to read the Bible on their own? What they needed to hear was what the rabbis in the past had taught. And there are traditions like that today. People don't read the Bible for themselves. They wait for the official church teaching on it, and so they substitute the authority of the Word of God for the authority of the church, her theologians and leaders, and that replaces the Word of God for traditions. Now, remember, that's the context of the time. And then along comes Jesus, and in Nazareth, he's been reading Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, and after that, rather than discussing the views of the various theologians, he says, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, everyone's astonished. And since we have in the Gospels a number of examples of Jesus' teaching, I think we can get a picture of just why people were overwhelmed whenever they heard him speak. I mean, one reason is that he said, you have heard it said, and then he would quote, you know, the teachings of a rabbi, and then he would add, but I say to you. So that's quite a thing to say. Those rabbis are wrong, he said, I'm right. Here's another thing. Jesus was direct in a way that no one had heard him before. I mean, he spoke about heaven and hell. He frequently warned about the dangers of hell. Well, here's an example, Matthew 5, 21 and 22. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. <laughs> that get your attention. I bet it did. Direct, straightforward, and about something everyone's interested in. It's about what people were doing. It's about the eternal significance of everyday actions. 
And furthermore, Jesus, instead of using heavily laden theological words, he spoke the language of the people. He used illustrations, and the illustrations were taken from daily life. Everything from, you know, what fishermen were doing when they cast a net into the sea and pulled up fish, to farmers going out to the fields to sow seeds, and once to a man finding a treasure in a field. You know, in Jesus' day, sometimes the rich hid their treasures in the ground because they wouldn't trust in the banks. So it was possible to find a treasure hidden in a field. He told of a man being mugged, left bleeding on the road to Jericho. Everyone knew that road and the dangers that were there. But perhaps more than all of this is the fact he spoke as one who loved them and had compassion on them and knew their struggles and their heartaches and tenderly drew them to the Father. It was as if when he spoke, it was that the voice of God was speaking in their synagogue. It was as profound as if they had stood at Mount Sinai on the day the Ten Commandments were given. And yeah, it is true. They had never heard anyone speak like this. The authority. God was in the room. And for that reason, you know, people would travel a great distance just to have the opportunity of hearing this man speak. I mean, you have to imagine that the normally noisy synagogue would become quiet. People lost track of the time. They became so engrossed in what he said, and all of the other distractions of life simply melted away for as long as he spoke. It was that they had been transported into the Holy of Holies. They were called on to repent, to have faith, to listen, to wonder at the grandeur of God. Not one person had ever heard such a sermon before. All they could think was, you know, he possesses authority. We've never heard anyone like that. But now that we hear him, we hunger for more of it. That stuff we have been living on, you know, simply wasn't enough. Once we've heard his voice, we want more. The hunger we didn't know we had has been awakened, and we have a desire for the kingdom. And it is here, right here, when the authority of the living God is echoing through that synagogue in Capernaum as Jesus is teaching, suddenly, as if out of nowhere, came the voice of evil. For when truth is spoken with authority, and when people are encountering the one true living God, evil will not stand idly by. Evil, evil wants to suppress the authoritative voice of God. Faith is never disappointed. Back to the Bible Canada can testify to the hand of God in and through this ministry. As one of our listeners reports, we want to be part of what God is doing through Back to the Bible Canada, not just in Canada, but overseas. That's why we support. Beyond a doubt, God will accomplish His purposes. He chooses to employ His faithful people as His hands. As we begin a new year, may I ask you to consider a financial gift to support and sustain this ministry? or perhaps even consider becoming a monthly partner at the beginning of 2024. Your generosity allows us to enter into this new year fully supplied for what the Lord has in store for His kingdom. To give a gift or become a monthly partner, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Luke says that on that day in that synagogue in Capernaum, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. Now on that matter, on the matter of demons and demon possession, it's important to pause here and gain perspective. 
You know, our day, we in this, that is in secular countries, we, we tend to assign the idea of demon possession to simply one category of mental illness. But let's consider this phenomenon. We find it so frequently in the ministry of Jesus. I mean, why is it that wherever he speaks, we see this reaction of the demon possessed? Well, first of all, the Bible teaches us that there is a spirit. There's a fallen angel whose name is either Satan or Lucifer or Beelzebul, Revelation 12, 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So we have here first a a depiction of a reality. The entire world is being led astray, and it's being led astray by a great dragon, one who hates the human race. He was the one who deceived our first parents and led them into rebellion against God, which brought death. But the book of Revelation also said that this great dragon, the one who devours one person after another, that one is not alone. He's accompanied by his angels, the angels that rebelled against God and against his throne, and so being deprived of their access to the dwelling place of God. They've been thrown down. They now rage against God, and they do so by deceiving the nations. So I would think that Satan's emphasis is on deceiving the leaders of the world so that they would hate the Christ and that the deception would continue. But there's another function, and it does relate to individuals. We simply don't know how many angels or demons Satan has or who he deploys as his troops. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 16 and 17, Moses speaks about the rebellion that's there in Israel when they desert the true and living God and they go to the idols or the gods and goddesses of the nations around him. Here's what Moses says. He says, they stirred him, that is the living God, to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your father had never dreaded. Look, I'm not saying all religions are demonic, but there are demonic religions, religions that promote hate and killing and warfare and the destruction of human dignity. And eventually the demons find their way into the lives of individual people whom they destroy utterly. And why would the demons do that? Well, they would do that to teach the entire population to fear the demons and pay no attention to the truth. And so not all mental illness is mental illness alone. And furthermore, some people who don't exhibit any mental illness symptoms are deeply sold to evil, are possessed by evil spirits, so much so that it impacts the entire society. And that brings us to Galilee, and more specifically to the city of Capernaum. Jesus is speaking in the synagogue, and he's speaking with great authority. And among them that day in the synagogue, there's a man who has, as Luke puts it, a spirit of an unclean demon. And in the middle of Jesus' sermon, he cries out, ha! And that first word, ha, it's, it's startling. And then he adds, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? So what does he mean by us? Does he mean, what do you have to do with us, the citizens of the town of Capernaum? I mean, why are you here? So if that's the question, us means, if you're the Messiah, aren't you supposed to be reigning in Jerusalem and defeating the enemies of the Jews and overthrowing the Roman Empire and seated in a place of global authority? But here you are among us, synagogue right here in Capernaum. I mean, what do you have to do with us? Do your global thing. Why are you here? Now, that might be a natural way of reading us in this passage. But again, if that was intended, this demoniac wants to get Jesus to explain the nature of his ministry, what he intends to do, rather than ministering to the souls of these men and women in this synagogue. 
That is, explain the theology of your ministry. Engage us in major contexts, but keep us out of our individual lives. But I don't think that's what this man meant by the use of the word us. Us was not the citizens of Capernaum. It was rather the demonic host. What have you to do with us demons? Aren't you going to come at the end of time and end our reign then? But that doesn't seem like the end of time now. What are you doing here with us demons right now? Indeed, it is this second use of us. That's what the demoniac intended. Have you come here to Capernaum to destroy us demons right here? And we say that because we know who you are. No doubt they did. And no, they didn't know that because they knew everything. They knew that, no doubt, because their dark lord, Satan himself, had told them how he attempted Jesus in the wilderness and at that place where every other person fails and succumbs to his devices. Jesus had not. He had remained sinless. And so they come to the conclusion, who is this man? He must be the Holy One, the long-expected Messiah. But on the other hand, it didn't seem to make any sense because it wasn't the end of the age. The global powers carried on as before. In one sense, the power of the demons continued to lead the whole world astray as they had always done. What is he doing here and why is he tormenting us, they ask. Now stop for a moment and consider this. You know, James 2 verse 19 says to people, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. That is, to simply believe that there is one God and that this one God has sent his son into the world. Well, that's a good thing to believe, but it's not enough. It doesn't save you because it doesn't save the demons. And clearly there in the synagogue on that day, the demon-possessed man clearly seems to know who Jesus is. So one thing seems clear from the ministry of Jesus. He never engages the demons in a dialogue about theology or about his mission. He would engage people in that. He explained the details of his mission to his chosen disciples, but he didn't do that with the demons. And from that, we learn a very important lesson. Evil does not respond to a dialogue. It doesn't respond to negotiation. It doesn't respond to a reasoned presentation of the truth. Evil responds to but one thing. It responds to authority. And the one who spoke in the synagogue that day, did anyone doubt it? This man had authority. And so Jesus speaks words of authority. So the first command, be silent. Stop talking. I will not permit it. The second command, come out of him. That is, he drove the demon right out of the man. And with that comes a phenomenon. The demon threw the man down right there in the synagogue, Sabbath, on the floor. You know, I imagine the man didn't simply collapse. Rather, you know, there's a violent response, so much so that it genuinely appeared that the man had been thrown down by someone else. And it happened with such violence that you would have thought the man was either knocked unconscious or that he had done himself considerable harm. But Luke, who is, by the way, a physician and would have been very interested in the man's health, notices that no physical harm had been done to that man. And that was remarkable. But the result of this was that the demon-possessed man was healed, that the demons had fled with a single word that was spoken by Jesus. And this led the people of the synagogue to remark, you know, what is this word? Now, when they say, what is this word? They're referring to the word, no doubt, come out of him. But as we've already seen, they also must have been referring to his authoritative preaching that they had never seen a man speak like this. This was a preacher who had no peers. And might I add, he still is a preacher who has absolutely no peers. 
But all this was capped off by that same word, not only speaking truth to them in the synagogue, but speaking a powerful word to that demon. And it must have felt as if they had heard a word as powerful as Israel had heard when they stood at Mount Sinai. It appeared to them that God had spoken. What does all that mean? It means that when Jesus taught and when he projected his power in the miracles he did, including his authority over evil, the kingdom of God was indeed breaking in among them right there on that Sabbath in the synagogue in Capernaum. Who would have believed that such a thing would happen among them? And consequently, says Luke, reports about him and what he did. They went out through all the cities of Galilee. That is, Jesus' fame is reaching the ears of everyone. Fishermen who were in that synagogue on that Sabbath were talking with other fishermen on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and those fishermen told their friends and family what they had heard while they were on the boats. They would have said, you know, that person told me this, and that person's not crazy. I've known him for years. And up and down the trade route of the Via Maris, passing by Capernaum, men and women were talking. What's happening in Capernaum? No one knew exactly what to make of it, but one thing was sure. There was a remarkable man who was living there. He speaks with the authority of God, and he has the power to back it up. No one has ever seen such authority before. It seems as if God himself is visiting us right here. And they all said to one another, if you ever get the chance, you're going to want to hear him. Well, that's how Jesus' ministry began. Thanks so much, John. Let me ask you, is it important to understand that in every way, Jesus has no equals? And and how should that impact our walk of faith? Yeah, I mean, uh, to know that he has no equals helps us, I think, in trusting him. I mean, you know, we all trust different people at different times in our lives, and we trust them because they're exceptional in some area. I mean, we trust our parents because... (laughs) You know, when we're little, there's no one that is equal to our parents. But as we get older, you know, there are trusted scholars and, you know, other individuals who have a great deal of knowledge or wisdom, and we put our confidence in that. We always look for someone who is distinguished above the crowd before we can trust. Now, here's what we need to come to terms with in Jesus. There are none like him. There are absolutely none. He alone is worthy of perfect trust, that we absolutely entrust our very souls into his hands because there is no one trustworthy like him. That's it. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, A Firm Grip on the Gospel, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Every Bible truth should be known. Every Bible truth should be lived. And frankly, it's easier to know what God says than it is to live it well. That's a gap Back to the Bible Canada wants to address in our new blog format. Starting 2024, Dr. John Newfeld and other trusted Christian leaders will provide a Bible-focused and practically-oriented resource to bridge the gap between faith and life. This resource will focus on the how-to in matters like shaping a consistent prayer life, wrestling with temptation, and navigating the advance of years. Each theme will reflect not only what the Bible says, but how our theology can be translated into our experience. 
Well, you can check out each new issue at backtothebible.ca and be sure to subscribe to receive each new article as it's available sent directly to your inbox.